welcome to episode 19 of Thinking in the Midst, a podcast about philosophy and action in education. With Derek Gottlieb, I'm Kara Furman. In this episode, our guest spoke to the challenges of engaging as women in a patriarchal society. They drew on philosophy in the interest of sharing, naming, and surfacing of experiences. They spoke to the ways in which thinking philosophically supported their navigation of the world as women when delivering keynotes, networking at conferences, and giving birth, and how bringing these experiences into philosophy made for better philosophy. Repeatedly, they pivoted between their own perception and a commitment to seeking out how others perceived from a different angle. They called listeners to recognize how far women have come and how far we must go for a just and equitable world. Welcome. It is so fantastic to see both of you this morning and evening. And we are here this morning to talk broadly about the patriarchy and how it affects lives in academia and other school spaces. And to get us started right now, Liz, would you be able to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about where you're coming from? Sure. Well, uh, thank you for having me. So I'm Liz Jackson. I'm a professor in the Department of International Education at the Education University of Hong Kong. Um, I'm also the immediate past president for the Philosophy of Education Society of Australasia and the uh, interim editor-in-chief with Mark Tessar of the journal Educational Philosophy and Theory, which is owned by uh, We're the Good Pisa, Pisa Society. Um, so yeah, great to, uh, great to join you today. Thank you. And Lauren? Yeah, lovely to be here with you and talking with my friend Liz Jackson. So my name is Lauren Bialystok. I'm Associate Professor in Ethics and Education at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, which is at the University of Toronto. I'm also Acting Director of the Centre for Ethics at the University of Toronto, and happy to be here. Thank you. Good to see you both. Excellent. So uh, it's a broad topic that we're talking about today. Um, could you uh, tell us or share with us uh, the story of sort of how you interact with this topic in your professional life, how you came to uh, uh, be interested in this in sort of personal and philosophical ways uh, and so on? Uh, Lauren, would you care to start and then we will go to Liz? Sure. Um, well, I certainly became interested in this topic, which, as aptly noted, is an exceedingly broad topic, uh, way before I, I knew who I was as a professional, way before I went to university. Uh, I think this is partly a condition of being gendered in the world and observing things. So, But I, I identified as a feminist, and I was interested in issues that I took to be related to gender from a very young age. And I think that part of what has sustained my interest and prompted some of my more formal investigations into these topics as an academic is that as a woman, I've become aware that my experience of gender and of being a woman is outrageously anomalous compared to most women in the world and certainly women in history. And I want to understand that and I don't want to forget that. And I want us to pay attention to the gains we've made and how they've been made and being vigilant about not sliding backwards. Excellent. Thank you, Liz. 
Uh, that's so interesting to hear, uh, Lauren. I think I was thinking I come at this from a different angle. Um, I mean, I, I had learned in um, school about about feminism. I studied in university. I thought I was a good feminist. Uh, and then I kept finding uh, once I started my career that being a woman made a difference in ways that I didn't realize made a difference. And this kept shocking me over the course of my career. So I think it began when I was a PhD student and a few times at conferences, people would ask me if I was doing feminist philosophy. Um, one of my, someone on my dissertation committee said, rather than studying multiculturalism, I should study women's issues. And at those points, it, it really offended me because I thought I want to be a philosopher and not just focused on gender. Uh, but I find it keeps coming up and it's something I can't get away from. Um, and like Lauren, I also find it really interesting how different women's experiences of this are and the way that I experience it and the way that I realize um, that it matters that I'm a woman in professional spaces, uh, that this is uh, something that's very individual, one person to the next is at the same time. So this makes it a really interesting topic for me philosophically. When I was starting my career, I wouldn't have said this was an interesting topic philosophically. Um, but over time, the more I learned about different women's experiences, uh, the more I realized how complicated and fascinating it was. I would add, it's not that it doesn't affect me professionally or that I'm not aware of it. It's more that the the role that it plays in my life and that it has played in my life, I mean, first of all, I think has been made obscure sometimes because of the gains we've made and because we grew up in a period where we were told that women's equality had essentially been achieved, even though it hadn't. And that I'm just aware of how minimal or um, minimally noxious the role is for me compared to uh, other women now and certainly other women in the past. Thank you for that. Thank you. So you've both written about um, issues related to feminism, broadly defined, um, working against the patriarchy, broadly defined. And one thing that's interesting about both of your writing is that you move um, from story to philosophy and from the personal over to the general in some really interesting ways. So I'm wondering if you can both share a little bit about what you have found as a researcher on these topics and invite you to begin with some of the fantastic stories that you tell to help bring a broad range of readers into what it is that you're really talking about here. Um, and would one of you prefer to go first? Liz, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah, I have um, some ideas about this. Uh, so I think I the first time I decided that I had to write about these issues, it was uh, based in having some interesting personal experiences which made me think twice about the issues and, and their importance um, in academic spaces. So specifically around uh, sexual harassment um, and the borderline areas of sexual harassment. So I think it was um, maybe six or seven or eight years ago, uh, I was at a philosophy of education society conference. And as soon as I walked into the room, I, I um, went to an evening events. It was a party in someone's hotel room. And as soon as I came in, I saw the hotel room was full of about 40 
of my best friends, men and women of different ages, uh, all kinds of different people. And as soon as I went in the room, I noticed that just about every man in the room um, had to touch me like I was some kind of magnet, um, either touching my arm or hugging me. And I was really surprised. And and I started thinking later, why am I surprised about this? Um, I think it's because I've been working and living in Asia so long where people aren't as touchy-feely in general. Um, but what really became interesting to me about this, so I thought, okay, this is kind of a funny experience. Uh, then a day or two later, I mentioned to some some colleagues of mine, geez, the, are guys just really flirty or really touchy-feely these days? And she said, what are you talking about? Um, you know, wh who did something to you? And then I realized I have to explain that somebody did something to me. Uh, and I found that to be quite awkward. And then I realized in that process that, that this woman was sort of flabbergasted that I'd had anything strange happen to me, that she'd had the opposite of exper experience as me. So this made me think more deeply about why, how is it that certain spaces feel safe to some people, but they don't feel safe to others. So when it comes to uh, conference spaces, there are some women who don't really notice there being anything um, uh, related to, to gender or sexuality. For other women, they feel like they're constantly being a, a made aware that they're a sexual object when they're going to conferences. Uh, and I found that this difference is quite interesting. And this, this is what made me think this is something worth studying um, more systematically. Uh, on the other hand, when we come to, uh, you know, if, if we think about uh, another group, which might be seen as being uh, accused in this kind of discourse of uh, anti-patriarchy, if we think about uh, older men's experience, okay, some of them don't do anything strange, would never want to hug or touch anyone, uh, while others uh, probably, you know, they think of it as a very friendly thing to do. Uh, and so from their perspective, uh, they're not sort of hugging every woman they run into, like they have to hug every woman they run into. Uh, and this, so this made me think it's really interesting to study. Um, and then I started connecting it to, uh, we know from a lot of uh, social science research that women are uh, have different expectations put upon them in the workplace and higher education. Uh, and I started getting into uh, feminist theory more and more. And particularly, I think Arlie Hawkschild's work on flight attendants, uh, the managed heart where she talks about flight attendants in the 1970s and 1980s. I, I really connected to that. And I realized, you know, she's not talking only about flight attendants who are smiling and happy uh, and they're doing this work not because they love being flight attendants, but because it's their job and because it's about the safety of, of customers, uh, that, that this is common for a lot of social uh, service fields, a lot of fields where you're helping and serving other people. And in those fields, too, people have very different experiences. And it also goes into your emotions. So from a philosophical view, I found it very interesting to connect what does this have to do with emotions? What does this have to do with identity? What does this have to do with the workplace? And is this something you can generalize uh, or is it not something you can generalize? Uh, so that sent me down the rabbit hole. I'm going to turn to Lauren in a second, but Liz, in your paper, 
the I think the part start of it is the smiling professor. You talk about both what performing emotions for others is like, and I thought that distinction was really helpful. And you also give some categories for the ways in which women often are asked to perform particular emotions in a professional space. And I'd ask you to go a little bit more in deep deeper about what you found because I know that this is the the distinctions that you came up with, I was thinking about the whole week as I was thinking about some of my interactions and I found it really useful. Sure. Uh, so in in The Managed Heart by Arlie Hochschild, she talks about flight attendants often play one of two roles. One is the sexy girlfriend. And this is something you can see in advertisements even to this day. Uh, that they're sort of flirty. And there's the idea that traditionally people who are flying, there's a lot of business travelers who are men, that uh, they are someone they want to uh, get married to or sleep with. Uh, A lot of the advertisements have even said, you know, you can maybe meet your wife on the next flight. Um, And then they said the other role is like the kindly grandma or the kindly mother who you get on the plane and you're angry and she's there to support you and say, oh, you know, it's okay. It'll be fine. Uh, so I started just talking to every everyone I knew in academia about this issue who would stand to talk to me about it, men and women, um, and, and gain different um, feedback from different people. So I said, you might say that there's the sexy girlfriend role in the conference where people are flirting. So I've had um, some of my friends tell me that after they give a a conference keynote, uh, that they're so excited to give the conference keynote, some guy will come up and just say how attractive uh, they are, or like they have great legs or something, which is is really upsetting because you're excited about your work. And then, and then you realize you're just being hit on, basically. Um, in addition to this, I think something specific to conferences, which is a role that I found myself in, and for some reason, I feel like I should age out of this, but I haven't yet, is what I call the sunny daughter. And the sunny daughter um, is someone who, and I've had a lot of uh, graduate students tell me that they connect with being the sunny daughter. You go to the conference, you're excited to meet people, and these older men start giving you a lot of advice. You aren't asking for advice. You're hoping that you can talk about intellectual ideas and you feel like you're being talked down to. Related to that is uh, Big Sister. And I also experienced this role quite a bit myself. Um, So I think an example I gave in the paper was that when I was on the tenure track as an assistant professor, male PhD students would give me advice about my career and about tenure track. Uh, And I find to this day, um, people that are at the same level or lower level in terms of academic hierarchies have no problem giving advice. And, you know, I don't think of myself as someone who doesn't want advice or who has to play this uh, competitive game with people. So so a question here is what kind of personalities uh, are the ones that tend to get that kind of treatment? Uh, you can also find something like the um, kindly mother or grandmother. And then another um, I mean, one thing that this work doesn't deal well with is the diversity of uh, sexual identities. So talking to a lot of women who identify as queer and um, as not cisgender uh, and uh, related identities, they're less sort of cis traditional uh, stereotypical uh, feminine uh, that they feel like they get treated like one of the boys and 
And I've actually had a number of women in another in this kind of camp. And and you want to be careful not to generalize too much. But this other camp of women who say, um, I don't have the guys coming on to me or giving me advice. I have them talking to me about how hot the, the chicks are at the conference. And I've had a number of older women tell me that they get this kind of treatment, like they're one of the guys, uh, which is also horrifying and disturbing to them on a different level. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was, it was a fun exercise to do that. And I've had a lot of people, I mean, it's obviously a, a major simplification, but it has, I think it's connected with um, a lot of people. Thank you, Liz. I will reiterate, I think it was, I found it really helpful and that it was giving distinctions that I recognized, but hadn't had words to explain exactly what, what I felt like I had experienced in pretty much all of those categories. I'm going to turn it over to you, Lauren, to talk a little bit about your research and what you have found. I haven't researched uh, the professional side of things as systematically as, as Liz had, but as she was speaking, I was thinking of a few similarities and differences in our experiences and how that's shaped how I think about it. So I also really appreciate the importance of labeling some of these phenomena and giving people language to recognize how gender and sexist stereotypes are playing a role in their lives. I mean, labeling is the first step in progress. Uh, one of my favorite things that I've heard Gloria Steinem say is, we haven't solved sexual harassment yet, but at least we have a word for it. It used to just be called life. So coming up with terms like that is really central to raising consciousness and pointing out how sex and gender are operating on people. I've had, you know, some comparable experiences in philosophy of education or in the education world as Liz. But I think one thing that strikes me that's worth pointing out is I came from philosophy and I noticed a contrast between the fields uh, immediately and unmistakably. And that contrast, which is almost exclusively a positive one on the education side has stayed with me. So I think part of the reason that I'm, uh, I, I feel more lucky and less affected by such dynamics is because I started out in a different corner of academia and professional life. So I, when I did my PhD in philosophy, um, and I think this is still mostly true, but it's moved in, in a somewhat better direction the field was overwhelmingly male not to mention white it's still overwhelmingly white but it it was the most male dominated discipline in the humanities and social sciences by a lot it had about the same uh gender ratios as more of the hard sciences like engineering and furthermore the culture itself seemed to uncritically replicate some of what we would now refer to as toxic masculinity, but I don't think it was, I mean, I don't think that was even really uh, in the air then. And, and for reasons that are understandable, because I, you know, I was trained to think that good philosophy is as rigorous as humanly possible. And that requires um, unapologetically deconstructing and criticizing ideas and arguments and receiving such criticisms, you have to have a very thick skin to be a, quote, real philosopher. And that the people who were best at this um, had little time for the sort of niceties of making pe people feel safe or flattered before they issued their critiques. That the way to do this is just to cut right, right to the chase. And I still saw people being 
friends and, and having positive relationships in this environment. But what most of the older, mostly male professors modeled for me as I was being forged in the institution of philosophy, right out of undergrad, in undergrad and right out of undergrad, was a kind of cutthroat academic environment, which I came to realize favored a particular form of male dominance and alienated women and racial minorities and other minorities, not because we weren't as good at philosophy, not because we couldn't think rigorously, but because it was a combative environment where people who already had a lot of social capital and presumed dominance tended to flourish. So when I came to education, which was a few years after my PhD, first of all, I was in a much more uh, female-led environment. We know that the numbers, statistics, uh, you know, gender parity is much closer, if not if not, it's it's more women than men in education. And the aesthetic, just the way that we go about our business and what counts as doing the work also immediately felt different. So when I came into education, even though I was still doing philosophy in education, I noticed, for example, that after a talk, the the questions would almost invariably be prefaced with some form of gratitude or praise. Like, thank you, that was such an interesting talk. I almost never heard that in philosophy, almost never. And that the people at the front of the room were much less likely to be old white men. Not that there's anything with old white men, but we just, I, I didn't feel as much of an alien. And when back and forth, more, you know, critical debates did arise, they were done in a much less uh, aggressive or show-offy way than I had become used to. I did often feel that um, what I was, exp- I, I couldn't participate in philosophical questioning in a formal setting when I was going through my PhD because you just had to be extremely self-confident and um, aggressive to do it the way that people would earn respect. the the way that you needed to do for people to give you respect. So I guess, you know, one of my observations is that, of course, gender and sexism continue to play a role in all the disciplines and in all the professions. And I've absolutely had moments much like Liz described, where I became aware of myself or of other women in our field in a way that was disturbing. Um, But I also know that we've made a lot of progress and that there are contrasts. And I'm interested in this kind of double-edged sword of doing philosophy in a way that is really rigorous and where people expect to be pushed on their ideas and called to account for their arguments, but not done in a way that is unnecessarily harsh or alienating and not done in a way that simply perpetuates the existing power hierarchies where some people are predictably more confident about the quality of their ideas and their entitlement to press people on their ideas. Um, and I think we, we do a reasonably good job overall. Again, I'm, I'm speaking in relative terms, not in absolute terms, but I think it's been interesting to think about how my sensibilities around what counts as a, a good philosophical argument or a good philosophical back and forth, like at a conference um, has to be, tempered with an awareness of the role that power and especially gender dynamics play. 
before we go on to the next question, Lauren, you've recently written a book. Um, I don't rem- have the title uh, to just say exactly, but about sex education in schools and thinking about how education, um, f- one of the things is how education uh, and educational environments frame how we approach particular issues and topics. And sexism, of course, plays into that. Could you talk a little bit about that work? Sure. So the thank you for the opportunity to plug it. The book is called Touchy Subject, The History and Philosophy of Sex Education. And it's co-authored with Lisa Anderson, who's a, a wonderful American historian. And this does take us into somewhat different territory. But I guess, uh, educationally, it's a good reminder that whatever the subject, we're always already conveying messages about sex and gender, about the role that having a certain body plays in how people are treated and what they are presumed to need to know or not need to know, and when and how that information is supposed to influence their behavior. Sex education is a really prime example. As my my colleague, the historian, shows in her part of the book, for example, it was taken for granted until the early 20th century in the United States that at least white middle-class women did not need to know and were not supposed to know anything about sex until they got married, which is, you know, thankfully a conceit that we've sloughed off. Nobody, I think, today, even very conservative people are likely to believe that. If they do, they should at least know that it's logistically impossible. So that's no longer our our starting point. But the ways that ideas about sex and gender, as well as, of course, class and race and other features of our identities affect what we learn, what we encode as appropriate for ourselves and people like us, that continues to require a lot of very close attention and critical scrutiny. And it continues to be the case in sex education or what passes for sex education that students get very different messages depending on the kind of bodies they have and the gendered roles that they are coded as having. And that these are, I mean, to the extent that we we haven't perfected sex education by a long shot, this is bad for everybody. But part of the reason I was interested in this work and one of the things that was repeatedly corroborated in my research is that it's worse for girls, as you would expect. It's worse for racial minorities. It's worse for queer kids. But just between boys and girls teaching the birds and the bees in whatever off the rack way they're exposed to, um, girls suffer more. Girls continue to get messages that contain sexist double standards, sometimes extremely overtly, such as in abstinence only until marriage education, where they are literally told that if they have sex before marriage, they are equivalent to a piece of chewed gum or a used shoe that nobody would want to buy, because we all know that virginity is a commodity. Um, but even in much less overt ways, including in so-called comprehensive sex education. And of course, this also has to do with the hidden curriculum, the design of schools, other messages about how differentially people are treated based on their bodies and their gender. So it's unfortunately a site where we can see very clearly that as far as we've come, and in, in some ways we've come a long way, baby, we, we really, 
still live in the 1950s in some ways. And because of this narrative that we don't live in the 1950s, because of the narrative that feminism has triumphed and we've achieved gender parity, it's increasingly hard to recognize the ways in which women and girls remain systematically disadvantaged, and especially on the topic of sex education, given double standards and very uh, destructive messages about sexuality. Thank you, Lauren. And I appreciate how you keep reiterating this concept that we've, A, come come a long way in many ways um, and have a long way to go, but also that the message that we're getting is that we've come a long way and there's no more work to be done. So I really appreciate that, how you're rephrasing that in different contexts. Um, I can give you a... I can give you just a catchword for that if you want that can be useful. So the term post-feminism has come to refer to not an ideology, not an anti-feminist ideology, although you can find plenty of those if you want to open the paper and look for them, but more this zeitgeist, this attitude that feminism has accomplished its work, This, which is a lie, right? Which is it's a myth that's uh, given to younger women in particular, that although their mothers and their grandmothers fought for equality, and that was right to do, and that's a good thing. If you're a feminist now, you're just cranky because you don't realize that you've already won. And now taking it any further is just selfish and also reverse sexism. It's just blaming men for things that they can't be responsible for. So a lot of young women really do dutifully come to embrace this message that we're in a post-feminist era. Fewer young women now want to identify as feminist because they've been given the message that everything's been taken care of. And at the same time, they report ongoing sex and gender-based discrimination in their lives, and they are actually less able this is tragic to, you know, identify it and do something about it than women in my generation and Liz's generation were, even though in some ways things were worse in the 80s and 90s, because at least we were entitled to claim that it wasn't over yet. And now it's a real problem when young women say basically that they are treated as sexual objects or they're coerced into sex, but it's their fault. It's not someone else's fault because after all, we live in a post-feminist stage. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, I think that that last point is so powerful. The idea that I mean, think a lot about the the connection between an assumed broad based pursuit of social justice or like the acceptability of social justice being tied to a real deep seated desire to just never have to think about the issues that uh, that justice would involve ever again. And so like the way that those uh, play into each other, really fascinating. Also, your book is phenomenal. Touchy Subject is a wonderful book and everybody should get it. Thank you. And 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 Derek also has an important role in the book. I don't know if you want to be outed. <laughs> it's indexed. I think I'm outed. It's the index, but like, yes, thank you to- uh, Derek, Derek did the index. Thank you, Derek. <laughs> I, I did. I did. I, I got to read it first is the way that I like to uh, think about it. Um, so, so much great thinking in both of your uh, in both of your considerations. I- I'd love to ask each of you how you see 
your work is so fascinating because you're 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 thinking about the spaces that you're operating in, the disciplinary and uh, and conference spaces that you're operating in, and you're doing it from within that discipline with the tools and the uh, and the methods and that kind of stuff. So I'd love to uh, hear you talk a little bit about how you see uh, your identity as a philosopher coming to bear on these issues. How do you use the tools of the methods to think about, or the tools and the methods of the discipline to think about? And uh, turn the discipline back on itself a little bit, and get it, and get people in these spaces to think harder about those issues. Uh, Liz, let's start uh, with you, if that's okay. Sure. Um, for me, I uh, I think when I started working on the subject of sexual harassment and and the article we were discussing before. Um, the smiling philosopher. I was also aware that there was some serious issues with sexual harassment going on in some of our societies. So I was the president of the Philosophy of Education Society of Australasia um, when I just dis I discovered that there were some interesting patterns of some really um, terrible behavior that were going on. Um, and that's actually part of what inspired me to start writing about the work was there's the methodological complexities in studying this topic. So what happened was uh, when I was the president, we learned that there was uh, one or two older. Uh, so uh, we're in um, Australasia. So it's Australia, New Zealand and the Asia Pacific. There was one or two older white men who were targeting young international um, women of color, Asian women, and uh, telling them that they were very important and telling them that, uh, you know, if they wanted to take some walks together, they could do some publications. And these women would tell me what happened and they would say, you can't tell anyone because I don't want you to get in trouble. And at that point, I'm a tenured professor and the president of the society, and they're absolutely terrified about the situation. Um, at the same time, I know there was some issues going on in PES in America with uh, doing surveys and talking to people about their experiences. And in the in the process of trying to get women to speak out in uh, the Australasia context and in observing what was happening and people trying to do surveys of women in uh, United States and, and not just women, but of uh, all groups of people and their experiences, uh, that people are not always comfortable talking about these issues. So this is the first thing. Not everyone's comfortable talking about these issues. Just like Lauren said, people think it's their fault. People internalize it. Uh, it. It took me, you know, until I was 35 or 36 before I said, isn't there something weird going on with all the guys grabbing me? Uh, because before that time, I had actually been thinking, you know, I must be doing something wrong. Uh, so people are afraid to say anything. They're ashamed to say anything. This alters their perception of if something's acceptable or not. Uh, so we all have different standards of what's acceptable. All, all of us in this discussion have different standards of what's acceptable, right? Um, in terms of, do you want to hug people? Do you want to um, you know, hold people's hands when you're talking to them. We all have those different standards. So this makes it really philosophically interesting. So I I started realizing this by talking to a lot of different people, coming from a lot of different perspectives, um, coming from cross-cultural perspectives, uh, different parts of the world where gender norms are very different, um, and other uh, minority cultural contexts in Western world, uh, and realizing that the traditional social science methods of discovering whether or not there's sexual harassment 
aren't really effective in this context. Um, at the same time, I connected with a colleague of mine, um, Ana Luisa Garcia Munoz um, in Chile, um, who's doing work on sexual harassment. And all around the world, most women would say they haven't been sexually harassed. But uh, if you ask them, has any man in a position of power made you feel uncomfortable? 100% of women will. So this is an interesting methodological challenge where I would say it's a great example of something that traditional social science research methods is going to have a very hard time uh, tracing and where a philosophical method is useful useful where you're um, trying to elaborate different concepts and you're trying to understand different aspects of the situation. So one aspect is our perception of what's acceptable behavior. One aspect is the nature of our relationships with other people. One aspect is the whole education we've had over our lives about the way we act in professional spaces. Uh, and so I find doing philosophy helpful in order to think through um, the answer to this question is not just to stop sexually harassing people or bothering women, right? If if that was the answer to the question, we wouldn't have this issue. So this is why it's so philosophically fascinating as well. Um, so, so what's really going on here is quite complex. And I think thinking philosophically helps me think about that complexity, as well as the complexity of the solution. The solution is not to tell everyone um, to create a safe space, because 90% of people think they're in a safe space, including all of the women who've had weird things happen to them at conferences. They still would say they're in a safe space. So uh, so the, what is happening is very difficult to understand. And what is the solution is also very difficult to understand. And this is where I find um, another method of just really engaging in dialogue with really different people, really trying to connect with people who have the opposite perspective as I do. So I worked um, and spoke with a lot of uh, people who are really skeptical about safe spaces policies, who find them offensive and problematic. And um, when I was president of PISA, I saw that as my role was to understand why would some people be against a safe spaces policy um, who are, you know, wonderful people, but they also have a totally different view of the world than I do. They've had a, you know, a different experience of the field than I've had. Um, and if we don't talk to each other, we don't even know that. Um, and in terms of the publishing, then I've really just tried to give voice to a lot of different perspectives and show perspectives that aren't only my perspective and ask other people to share uh, their perspectives as much as possible. Um, and it might be anonymous and it might be anecdotes and, it, and, and uh, you know, that's not going to be rigorous from a social science view. But if, if people can put themselves in another person's shoes, then I hope that that actually does help solve the problem. Although, you know, probably the people who I would like to benefit from learning about these experiences probably don't read my articles or my books or are going to listen to this podcast, but we'll see. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Liz. Uh, Lauren? Well, that's hard to follow up. I'd, I'm not going to answer the question by talking so much about turning the tools of philosophy against the discipline or the profession as such, but maybe how I feel like being able to think about these things in philosophical ways has affected me in, in my own self-understanding and motivated me to pay more attention to what other women are experiencing and some of the more systematic forces that are working on us. Um, one experience where this uh, contrast between the kinds of 
autonomy that I typically enjoy as a women as a woman and the the experience that most women historically have had um was made really clear to me was in childbirth. And I found that being able to think with a feminist philosophical lens about a whole range of (laughs) steps in, you know, pregnancy, childbirth, raising an infant, breastfeeding, raising children now has been helpful and given me some comfort. And when I've talked to other mothers, I've also found that we we crave this kind of insight and analysis and collective reflection on our experiences, which our, our field can offer us. Um, when I gave birth to my first child, you know, I went into it like the educated, affluent, urban white woman that I am. I thought just like in almost every other facet of my life, I would have quite a lot of control over what happened to me. My choices would be respected. I would be able to, you know, talk or negotiate my way out of things that weren't going well. And that, you know, ultimately I would be in, in a very reliable healthcare system. So even if things didn't go to according to plan, my, my body and my, my medical needs and my baby's medical needs would be attended to. Now, fortunately, we're all healthy, but my actual experience of giving birth was at the first time, possibly the most disempowering thing I've ever experienced. This moment when I was supposed to be, you know, doing the quintessential womanly thing of pushing a baby out and becoming a mother and having all those chemicals and feelings flood through me. I actually felt alienated, inadequate, terrified. And that is because I especially realized on some reflection, the medical complex that I was involved in and our culture at large since the since I was little and first imagined becoming a mother had taken over my agency to give birth. And I felt very acutely what I know many women feel in many more different areas of their life on a daily basis than I do, that my body was not my own that my choices and my reasoning weren't respected. And that if I did not submit, if I did not allow my body to be managed by other people, something terrible would happen. And interestingly, it's not that I allowed myself to be managed by men. It's not that any particular person did anything wrong. Everybody was just fulfilling their role. As a matter of fact, the obstetrician to whom my care was overturned when my midwife had to turn over the care was a woman. And my my husband was doing everything he could to support me. So it really pointed out to me that these are structural choices that disempower women. Um, you can read about the over-medicalization of birth if you want. I won't go into all the empirical research on that. But the over-medicalization is not an accident. It's not merely a scientific choice. It's not merely a choice of efficiency, although it's all of those things as well, how hospitals want to run more efficiently. It's a choice that was made at different moments very deliberately. Um, You can read Adrian Rich on this. It's absolutely chilling. 
to take over women's control of their bodies and women's knowledge of how to help other women through childbirth and hand it over to especially then an exclusively male medical establishment all in the name of science. And it led to me having um, a profoundly frightening and alienating experience that involved much more bodily injury than it needed to. And when my second, when I was giving birth to my second baby, I decided to have a home birth. And I wrote about that. I don't think home birth is for everyone. I, I don't think that all feminists should have home birth. It's not about that. It's a moment, again, of contrast, where I came to realize that forces were working on me because of my embodiment and because of cultural norms that we have come to absolutely take for granted. And that we can use philosophy and we can use feminist thinking, and we can use talking to each other about some of these topics that we are discouraged from talking to each other about, and that philosophy in particular, as this most cerebral discipline, has mostly jettisoned and mostly marked, as Liz mentioned earlier, as less than real philosophy and just women's work or just the personal private side of things, which is not really intellectual. But we can use all these things to raise consciousness and to start making changes and to stop taking for granted some of the ways which, as I referred to earlier with regard to sex education, sexism still acts on us invisibly. And we're given the narrative that because of legal wins or because of culture changes or because of medical advances, you know, they're there, dear. It's not really an issue anymore. Thank you both of you for your answers and for sharing all these really compelling stories that then fit with really rich philosophical analysis of these experiences. I really appreciate both. I'm going to share something very brief and then turn it to our final question, which is about um, kind of what do we do? So Liz, you spoke about the subtlety and Lauren, you just talked about the systems of how these things play out. And I wanted to share one very short anecdote, which is that very recently at a conference, I was talking to a male conference, a male um, colleague about work, about our work. Um, and we were engaged in a serious conversation about it. And another conference goer, kind of out of the blue, or it seemed out of the blue to me, said, um, how lucky it is that you both managed to find jobs at the same institution. That's so unusual because you're married. And my immediate response was, what have I been doing? What could I possibly have been doing to signal that I was married to this person who I'm not married to? Was there something wrong in my body language? And it was only in reading your paper, Liz, where I thought, oh, okay, this happens all the time. Like women at conferences, people assume that they must be the spouse. Or if we're really talking about something, we must be married or sexually engaged in some capacity. And then my next instinct was to think, wow, I've been sort of demoted from being an object of sexual interest to uh, what was once the object of sexual interest. And now I'm, I'm the wife. Um, and that's the role that I'm now suddenly playing in this conference. And that's kind of weird and confusing. Um, so all of that is to say, I don't think the person who asked that question in any way is a bad person or an unkind person, that somehow I just fit into this category. Um, and so 
that's a bit of a way in to say that I think we've got structures and particular behaviors that are both coming into play. Um, so my very quick advice would be probably just don't ask if people are married unless they talk about their wedding. Um, that just seems like maybe a good step, just like you don't usually ask people if they're pregnant unless they've revealed that they are pregnant. Um, but I'm going to ask both of you to talk about what could we be changing structurally or what could we be changing in terms of the ways that we act and treat people uh, to, to improve on these issues? Please. Um, so, so like I said before, I think, I think sharing the different experiences and stories is really interesting and helpful. Uh, I think the first time I realized that I had a unique experience, I was alienated in a way, but I think actually everyone has a different experience and everyone's grappling with this. So I remember when there was a larger um, Me Too movement, which has sort of coincided with the Me Too movement and philosophy of education. I remember talking to so many women who are just my friends across fields, not even in academia, who would say, is something wrong with me if I don't think I was sexually harassed? Is something wrong with me if, you know, I think this, you know, you know, if, if yeah, just like what you said, if someone thinks I'm someone's wife, did I do something? Um, so I think that that is really helpful and healing because these topics have been considered um, taboo, just not even worth talking about, like the shame of of womanhood, of femininity. Um, so I think exposing those stories, um, I think the people who are, um, I think there's some backlash against the idea of safe spaces and the idea of conferences really going out of their way to avoid bias and bullying. I think there's some backlash from that, from people who just have never been asked if there's some woman's boy toy when they're at a conference. And there's a part of me that's optimistic that if th that person, you know, can put himself into your shoes just a little bit for a moment, that he'll think, oh, that's actually shocking. And now I understand why this is a worthwhile endeavor. Um, this connects to a larger issue of, of talking about these things being women's work and being um, the work of, you know, it's like uh, being the the diversity person or being the and and feeling like you're being treated as worse than. Um, there's there's so many incredible events um, just at PES this last conference. There was an incredible event about the history of the Committee on the Status of Women in the Profession, telling stories, uh, and I think everyone in that room felt like they gained a lot from that. But it's really sad to me that there weren't very many men in that room. Um, like, I want to learn of the experiences of other people, too. I want to know what it's like to be um, a different a different person than myself. Uh, so I think part of it, you know, some people might say it's like dumbing down philosophy, but I'm all for it because I feel like I'm a way smarter person because I have this complexity of human experience in my head. Um, and I think that that just so, you know, I think we need to have conference sessions all about uh, the universal subject and how necessary it is. And then once we get everyone in the room, we just go hardcore into the, you know, mess with the patriarchy stuff. And Lauren, what would your, your suggestions be? Well, I, I second what Liz just said. Um, I, I want to say that I see a lot of encouraging signs of progress. And I also see some trends that will make it harder if we continue down this path to 
continue to draw attention to the kinds of problems that Liz and I have been talking about. I talked about how there's a, a post-feminist zeitgeist and there's a huge amount of backlash, both co- covert and in a lot of legislation, extremely overt about rolling back gains in women's equality and women's freedom. And I think most of us who work in our field are very aware of those and fairly united in um, opposition to them. There's also, I think, a form of tension that needs to be acknowledged among people who are all striving towards some version of gender justice, that it's become rightly um, urgent to talk about the even more invisible and minoritized people's experiences of oppression so that now we rarely talk about women or gender without an intersectional lens. And when we talk about women, uh, some people don't talk about women actually as a category, but we talk a lot more about uh, trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming people and um, gender fluidity and the ways in which our binary categories of sex, which have historically been overlaid with a binary category binary categories of gender are inadequate and oversimplified and do harm to other people. And that sometimes the women's movement or advocating for women's equality has entrenched some of these blind spots. This is really important to talk about. Um, And also, I think some people have become afraid of talking about women and girls without any further qualification. Um, or even feminism. I think that I think even among people who are very broadly oriented toward gender justice and to, you know, solidarity in anti-oppression politics are worried that feminism has this kind of archaic ring and that it only serves a certain minority of people at the expense of others. I think this is a very worrying mistake and we need to both diversify and figure out how to work in solidarity across various forms of gendered and sexed experiences and various forms of discrimination. And remember that around the world and in our own backyard and for time immemorial, women and girls have been targeted as a particular subordinate class. And this continues to affect even as Liz and I have been talking about, you know, white heterosexual women. There is something that is about uh, gendered and embodied experience there that does not need to be further deconstructed by race, class, sexual orientation. Although in other times, it's important to get a finer grained analysis and talk about the different and sometimes worse experiences of people with multiple forms of marginality. So I would just urge us to continue thinking holistically and specifically to continue thinking about women and girls as a group of people who are discriminated against no matter how they identify in an assortment of sectors and spaces and the frontiers of gender justice, the groups of people whose experiences have still hardly been heard and whose particular needs for justice need even more uh, concerted reckoning it's it's a difficult balance to strike, but I think that's where we need to go. Thanks so much for uh, that wonderful thinking. I'm Lauren, with respect to what you just said, uh, I'm reminded of a, a really good recent book by the political theorist Nathan Rochelle DeFord. Uh, they published this then under uh, Rochelle DeFord. It, 
it's called Solidarity and Conflict. It goes deep into those particular issues, trying to figure out exactly how to uh, to manage both of those tensions that you just described. Thank you so much for all of your wonderful work on this topic. It's been uh, a pleasure in prepping for this uh this show to revisit uh, all of your work. Lauren, I know we're going to see you giving the keynote at OVPES in the fall, and that's going to be uh, phenomenal. Uh, yeah, it's been wonderful to, to be in conversation with you both. Thank you for taking the time today to, to come on the show and talk to us about your work and your experiences. Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. I wish I could have heard more um, from from the two of you, um, but it was great to to hear from you, Lauren, too. And and yeah, great to to get this conversation out there. So thanks very much. Yeah, definitely. And that is our show. Many thanks to Lauren and Liz for taking the time to talk to us. As always, do subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and a review to help others discover us as well. The email address at which you can reach Derek and I together is thinkinginthemidst at gmail.com. We also have a form linked in the episode description if you'd like to suggest future topics and or guests, including yourself. A special thank you to Senior Lecturer of Art and Director of Emory Community Art Center, Anne Barges, who shares, I think the reason I'm so hooked is because It's helping me better understand the state and stakes of public education, but also everything else and how it's all so interconnected. It's also exciting because your guests tend to be people who are analyzing these forces, but they're also infiltrating it. They are culture makers, like artists. So, for Derek Gottlieb, and in two weeks when we put up the next episode, I'm Kara Furman, and we'll see you next time.